0: All right, thank you so much, Music Ministry, and thank you, church family, for supporting uh, the Sunday evening service. This is a wonderful, wonderful crowd here tonight, and we're certainly grateful for uh, the privilege that we have to meet together. If you have your Bibles tonight, I invite you to take them and go with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter number two, please. Nehemiah, chapter number two. While you're turning there, I wanted to just mention a couple of things to you uh, here this evening. A week from tonight, as a church family, uh, we will celebrate the Lord's table, and uh, we will gather together in that six o'clock service, and uh, we will commemorate and remember, really, the sacrifice that has been made uh, on our behalf, the sacrifice, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ there on the cross, and one of the ways, uh, primarily, that he has uh, ordained that we remember that sacrifice is through the Lord's table, and so if you're a member of this church, uh, this is your church home, and you're in this area, and you're not otherwise hindered, let me encourage you to be there. It's always a very, very special time uh, for our church. And of course, we're just on the verge of the holiday season, and uh, the holidays, of course, can become a very exciting time, a very wonderful time, a busy time, and maybe even an expensive time. I never want to add to uh, the burden, financial burden of our people, Uh, but we do believe that as God's people, we're to be givers. And I want to just say a word or two about a couple of special projects that uh, we can give towards. Uh, I don't know, probably in the last 10 or 15 years, something has been designated on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving as Cyber Tuesday. And it's a place where folks can do uh, some online giving. I shouldn't say Cyber Tuesday, it's Giving Tuesday. Cyber Monday is the day before. I'm getting my days mixed up. And Giving Tuesday is a place where folks give to charitable causes and charitable uh, organizations uh, after really several days of sort of shopping and buying things for us. And uh, the materialism that sort of takes over just a little bit in our culture Of course, you know the day after Thanksgiving is known as Black Friday. That's a huge day of shopping for in-person shopping. And then the Monday after Thanksgiving is known as Cyber Monday, and and that's a big day for online sales, and a lot of the companies are running special deals. And so we have, for the last several years, participated in Giving Tuesday as well. And and what we're giving, what we set a goal this year is to give $5,000 on Giving Tuesday to the Gospel Film Project. And many of you remember Dr. John Reynolds, who is here for our missions conference, and the gospel film is a a, a group that he represents, and the idea is there's an incredible film that has been made, it's about 12, I think, 13 minutes in length, and it is just such a clear visual picture of the gospel, incorporating scripture and music and moving images, and it has been translated into many languages, and when different things happen throughout our world, it could be perhaps a natural disaster that takes place somewhere or war breaks out somewhere. The gospel film, those that oversee that will spend significant amounts of money to promote the gospel film in different places that are being affected. And, uh, and I think to date they've spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in uh, promoting that through Facebook and primarily through Google and YouTube and that sort of thing. And so anything that we give goes directly to that uh, there's, as far as I know, there's no overhead for that. It goes directly to either translating the film into additional languages or to promoting the film so that more people will see it. And so um, some of you may want to be involved in that. Again, we have a goal of $5,000 towards that. And then, of course, our Christmas offering, uh, we, are, we are striving together for $50,000. $30,000 would go to the Asian Bible Project, which is a project that our church uh, really has uh, in, in introduced, and uh, it is uh, taking off all around the country and, uh, and, and, and it's a, a project in which we're printing Bibles for the 1040 window, and then we're shipping them there, and then obviously they have to be distributed. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you, perhaps maybe here on a Sunday night soon, we'll show the Asian Bible Project film or video that was made to promote that. And I don't know that our church has ever seen it, and so we'll do our best to have that ready to go at a Sunday night not too far from now. $10,000 will go to the loan payoff of the Heritage Baptist Church building in Willoughby, Ohio, which is a new church plant that we have just planted. And then the last $10,000 will go to the Grace Oasis Project in Botswana, uh, which is located there in the southern portion of the continent of Africa. And we support Mike and Cindy Haley as missionaries there. And uh, they have purchased this, this, uh, this uh, facility, this property, $445,000. They paid for it in cash. God's people came through and gave significantly so that they could have the property. And now it needs some renovation. It's somewhat dated, and so we want to have a part in that. So your $10,000... Uh, We'll go towards that as well, buying materials uh, and different things, of course, that would be necessary to update that facility. So I wanted you to be aware of that. We're in Nehemiah chapter number 2 tonight, and I'm I'm just going to read verse verse number 10. And uh, that'll sort of be the the launching point for for the message tonight. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it. Heard of it, of course, this is Nehemiah coming to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, notice it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. I want to try to answer the question tonight, why such hatred for the Jewish people? Why in our world is there such hatred for the Jews? On Saturday, October the 7th, I woke up and was going through my normal Saturday morning routine by just getting some updates on what really had happened in our world overnight. and I began to learn of the horrific events that were unfolding in Israel. On a holy day there, the Sabbath, or as they would refer to it, the Shabbat, Hamas, a radical Muslim terrorist organization, launched a full-scale surprise attack by air, by sea and by land, on the nation of Israel. As a result of this attack, more than 1,400 people were killed, including children, and more than 4,500 people were injured. The Israel defense forces believe that another 241 people have been taken hostage. I believe I believe about 30 or so of those 241 are Americans, taken hostage by Hamas and are being held in what is known as the Gaza Strip. Hamas claims to have launched on that day to have launched at least 5,000 rockets at southern and central Israel while the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, disputes this and claims that only 2,200 rockets were fired. The first warning sirens were sounded in Jerusalem at 6.30 a.m. on that dreadful day. I don't exactly know how far ahead of us Israel is, but I'm guessing seven to eight hours so as we were going to bed on that Friday night, things were beginning to unfold on the other side of the world. One of the most well-known sites of the attack was centered on a desert music festival in southern Israel. In Israel, Rescue Service reports, listen to this, they report that 260 bodies were removed from this venue following the attack. One of the, another, another disturbing story that has emerged from what happened there was a, a little kibbutz located just three miles from the Gaza Strip. That kibbutz was called "Kafar Aza. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. The news service Reuters ran an article on October the 12th titled, How an Israeli kibbutz paradise turned into hell in Hamas attack. An Israeli general had this to say about what they found in that kibbutz. He said this, it's not a war. It's not a battlefield, it's a massacre. I've never seen anything like this and I've served for 40 years. It is estimated that at least 70 militants penetrated this community armed with rifles, rocket-propelled grenades, and hand grenades. As the media were given the opportunity to observe the carnage in this little town, on the days that followed, one Israeli soldier standing off in the distance shouted to the media, tell the world, what you saw here. Tell the world what you saw here. Truthfully, while this was labeled as a surprise attack, it isn't all that surprising for us to learn of a war breaking out in that part of the world. The nation of Israel sits on a tiny plot of land that is just 290 miles long from north to south and only 85 miles wide from east to west at its widest point. Though it is it is insignificant. It is tiny by most standards. It is a very significant place housing a very significant group of people within its borders. From the beginning of time, some of the world's most significant and historic events have unfolded in this place. All around this tiny nation are people and nations that have been vowing to destroy them for many years. Iran's leaders have been preaching death to Israel for a long time. Many will claim that these conflicts are primarily political or that they're geographic in nature. For instance, on a trip I took to that part of the world in 2018, I heard with my own ears our tour guide say these very words. He said, every war, every war throughout history that has been fought in this land has been fought over the years because of water. Those those are the very words that I heard with my own ears our tour guide say. He was dogmatic that this, that this was the reality. But those of us who believe the Bible discover a far different truth, don't we? In our text, we find Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem, believing that God had put it in his heart to strengthen and fortify this holy city by rebuilding the walls. Ezra had gone there prior and had led the people to rebuild the temple, and now God was leading Nehemiah to go after the Babylonian at captivity and rebuild the walls And just like today, just like today, there were evil men who sought Jerusalem's destruction. It was in their best interest to keep Jerusalem weak and vulnerable. The Bible says of these men, their names are given to us, Sanballat and Tobiah, that they were grieved exceedingly that someone was come to seek Israel's welfare. These men would be a thorn in Nehemiah's side throughout the entire project, but by God's grace, the wall was completed in just 52 days. I want you to hold your place here in Nehemiah chapter 2 and go with me to Nehemiah chapter 6, if you would, where we find the end of this project, the completion of it, and we find the reaction of the enemies of the Jews. The Bible says in verse 15, so the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month alone, in 52 days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. Why? For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. You read that verse very, very closely and you'll get a significant clue as to why so much hatred for the Jews. A very, very significant clue is found in the 16th verse. Why so much hatred for the Jews? Why were their enemies so sad and downcast when this project was completed? Why did they try to resist their efforts to rebuild the wall? I believe, listen, I believe that their hatred was not a political hatred. Their hatred was not geographical Sam, I, Sam and Tobiah were not at all interested in the water supply in Jerusalem. It had nothing to do with that. I want to go on record tonight, and I want to say this has always been, and it remains still today, a very spiritual thing. In other words, what's being played, what's being played out over there is not about wells. It's not about lakes and streams and rivers. Well, there's some significance to that, no doubt, but it's not about that. It's not about about more land. It's not about political ideology. No, what is is happening in that part of the world and what will continue to happen and what has happened throughout the centuries of time is spiritual in nature. There's a familiar term that we hear of often. That term is anti-Semitism. The word Semitic describes a group of languages including Hebrew and Arabic as well as the people who traditionally speak those languages, today, anti-Semitism is known as prejudice against or hatred of Jews. Now, stop Stop and think about this for just a moment. As of 2023, the world's core Jewish population. Now, when you see that word core, you might ask, well, what does that mean? And the word, the word core, as it relates to Jewish population, means those identifying as Jews above all else. So in other words, when you, when you talk to them, who are you, what are you? And they don't, they don't talk, well, I'm an American, I'm a, I'm Russian, I'm this. No, no, I'm a Jew. That, that's who I am. They identify as Jews above all else. There are estimated to be 16.1 million of them. You say, well, that sounds like a lot. It's not really a lot. In fact, that's just 0.2%. 0.2% of the world's 8 billion population. So here's the question, why such interest? Why such fascination? And ultimately, ultimately why such hatred and vitriol from the people worldwide over such an insignificant amount of people? I believe this with all my heart, that this conflict that has lasted for thousands of years and for many generations, is indeed a spiritual conflict. Listen, this is a battle between good and evil. This is a battle between light and darkness. I'd even go so far as to say this is a battle between God and Satan. And in order to see this, listen, we have to look at the big picture. See, the reality reality today is, is that the Jewish people have rarely fulfilled God's covenant expectations for them. Rarely. Have they done what God demanded of them when he entered into a covenant relationship? By the way, God has never failed them, not a single time. But the Jewish people have primarily disappointed God and have have not fulfilled his covenant expectations for them. Their history is littered with idolatry, fornication, both physical and spiritual fornication, and ultimately, ultimately rejection of God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Can I just say that the vast majority of Jews living in the world today do not know Christ. Of the 16.1 million, I wouldn't even venture a guess, but it would be a very, very small number, maybe even, even in line with that 0.2% that we said just a moment ago of what the Jews, the core population of Jews, would make up of the world's overall population. Maybe, maybe that few of them have come, have personally come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Messiah and have repented of their sins and believed on him for everlasting life. So when I say, listen, when I say that this is good versus evil, I am not speaking of the current state of the nation of Israel. I'm not saying that they always represent good and that they always do right and that that they're always on the right side of every issue. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, I'm saying good versus evil in the overarching plan of God to use the Jews to bless all people. You see, God has chosen the Jews to be his covenant children and to accomplish his plan of salvation and redemption through them. And listen, the devil is acutely aware of these things, and he has worked diligently throughout history to destroy the Jewish people, knowing that if he can somehow do this, he can thwart God's plan and claim the throne and power he has always coveted. The Bible says in Isaiah 14, here's what the devil said For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And one of the ways, one of the ways he's determined that he can do that is by destroying the nation of Israel. Destroying the Jews because if he can do that, then God's promises to him are unfulfilled and God is not who he claims to be. Now listen, he will never accomplish these things. You can rest assured that he will never accomplish these things. But he will also never stop trying. Now, with all of this as background, let me try to answer for you biblically why the world hates the Jews. Can I say number one? I believe the world hates the Jews because their existence proves there is a God. The world, why so much hatred for the Jews? Because their very existence proves that there is a God. Now we're going to use our Bibles a little bit tonight, but go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, would you? 1 Samuel chapter number 17, we find one of the great stories of the Old Testament, it's the battle between David and Goliath. It's a battle between Jews and at that time Philistines. It's also a battle between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and Satan. And I want you to notice David's battle cry in verse number 45. Then said David to the Philistine, to Goliath, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Now I want you to read the last phrase with me. You've got your Bible open. If you don't, it's right there. Would you read it together with me? Here we we go. Here's why he's going to do this. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. There it is. There it is. David, David said, I'm going to bring you down, big boy. You're mine. Goliath laughed, and he scoffed, and he mocked, and he scorned. David said, I'm not going to bring you down in my own power, my own strength, because I don't have any power and strength compared to you. But Here's how I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to bring you down through the power of the hand of my God. And when I do, and word gets out of what happened on this battlefield, everyone in this world, is going to know that there is a God in Israel. That's what it's all about. That's why the world hates the Jews, because their existence proves that there is a God. Now listen, from the very beginning of the nation of Israel's existence with Abraham and Sarah, the odds, listen, the odds were always heavily against Israel. In other words, in other words, their whole history has been one David versus Goliath moment after another. You understand that, right? I mean I mean first Samuel 17 is just a microcosm of the entire history of the nation of Israel that they've always faced bigger enemies, badder enemies, scarier enemies, people who had more weapons, people who had more strength, people who had more numbers than they would ever have. That has been their history, and yet God has stepped in every time. I want you to think of the times that the devil sought to destroy the Jewish race. I mean, I just made a small, small list. I have no doubt, I have no doubt in my mind that he was in Sarah's suggestion that Abraham just go ahead and have a child with Hagar. No doubt about it. The devil got all over that thing. The devil was in it. I have a feeling that the devil thought, you know, if you can just have a child with Hagar, it'll satisfy your desire to have a son And we can just move on with life and there will never come a seed between Abraham and Sarah. We don't have to worry about that because we already know that the promise has been made in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent, though the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. We, We know that struggle. We know that battle. And I have no doubt that the devil was whispering in Sarah's ear, just like he whispered in Eve's ear, it'll be okay. I think to myself, can you see the devil trying to capitalize upon and use the great famine that takes place at the end of Genesis? But God was one step ahead, wasn't he? By preparing a man named Joseph who would step in and lead the people to ration food through the seven years of plenty so there would be something to eat during the coming famine. I have to think the devil was whispering in the ears of Pharaoh when he when he decreed that all of the Hebrew male babies be killed in Exodus chapter number one in an attempt to control or to call this growing population. I have to think the devil used Pharaoh to try to keep Israel enslaved and he probably was certain, the devil had to have been certain that the Red Sea was his best chance yet to annihilate the Jews. I mean, they'd walked right into this trap There was the Red Sea in front of them, and here comes the advancing Egyptian army behind them, an army with chariots and with swords and and, and with weapons and and, and mighty in number, And, and the children of Israel have nothing. Don't you suppose the devil sat back, rubbed his hands together, and thought to himself, this is my moment. But you know what God did? The devil used false gods Wars with neighboring nations and captivity throughout the remainder of the Old Testament to try to destroy them. Christ's birth came at a time of Roman occupation, and the devil pulled a familiar tool out of his bag when Herod ordered every male child that was under the age of two living in Bethlehem to be slaughtered. By the way, by the way, let me pause here for just a moment, and let me just say this. You will always find the devil behind the murder of babies. Make no mistake about it. Now listen we uh, we took it on the chin this past Tuesday as a state and we're grieved about it. We're grieved about it. And I just want to I just want to go on record. I just want to go on record and say the devil loves it when babies are murdered. And you see evidence of that in your Old Testament, and you see evidence of that in your New Testament, and we see evidence of that in our world today as well. I could go on and on, but I must continue. In 70 AD, the Romans marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and looted its sacred contents. In the year 415 AD, St. Augustine, a famed theologian in the Christian faith, wrote some very alarming anti-Semitic words. He said, here's what he said, St. Augustine, you, you hear him sometimes quoted favorably. Here's what he said. The true image of the Hebrew is Judas Iscariot, who sells the Lord for silver, The Jew can never understand the Scriptures and forever will bear the guilt for the death of Jesus. In 1348 and 1349, as the Black Plague took its toll on Europe, the Jews became the scapegoats. They were accused of poisoning wells and were tortured and slaughtered from Spain to Poland. And perhaps maybe the devil thought to himself, "Now's my chance to wipe out this nation of people. Some of you were alive between 1939 and 1945 when when approximately six million Jews were murdered by the Nazis in what has come to be known as the Holocaust. Now, think with me for a moment. Clearly, clearly we see a consistent pattern throughout history to obliterate the Jews. You you mean to tell me it's all about water? Water? Come on. you kidding me? This isn't about water. This is Satan against God. This is Satan looking at the Jewish people and saying, if I can destroy them, if I can do away with them, then I can destroy God. Clearly, clearly this is what's happening. This fledgling group of people who have outlasted all their enemies who are much more numerous and powerful than them, what's the only way to explain something like that? The only way to explain it is God. Why does the world hate the Jews? Because their very existence to 2023 proves, listen, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven. Just as David said on that battlefield there in the Valley of Elah, I'm going to bring you down, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. To this very day, every time a Jew steps onto a battlefield, the God of heaven steps up to defend them. Why? So that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Now listen, you and I I know this, that this world is quickly forsaking God. wants to act as if he's not real, he doesn't exist. And yet, if they acknowledge and recognize the Jewish people and what God has done through the Jewish people and for the Jewish people, then they have to acknowledge his existence. So why does the world hate the Jews? Because if we can do away with the Jews, then we don't have to think about God anymore. Number two, the world hates the Jews because through their existence, we have been given the word of God. Romans chapter number three, verses one and two, you'll notice these verses, what advantage then hath the Jew? Question mark. Or what profit is there of circumcision? Good question. Paul's asking the question, he's saying, what, What's the advantage of being Jewish? Is there any profit to the fact that we're circumcised and that the rest of the world is uncircumcised? Well, we'll go to the next slide and look at verse number two. Here it is. Much every way. In other words, he's saying, big advantage, significant advantage of being Jewish, of of being circumcised. Here it is. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The word oracles means utterances. So when you see that word, that's what it means. It means word, utterances, speech. So when he says unto the Jews were committed the oracles, we would say the utterances of God. The word of God was committed unto the Jews. Listen, all of the holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, all of them were Jews. So what? Second Peter one twenty one says that that's how they spake, because they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But why, why? would the world hate a book like this book? I mean, isn't it special? Isn't it unique? How we got it? Isn't it miraculous? Here's why. Number one, because God's Word teaches us we're all sinners. Romans three twenty three is so very clear, isn't it? The message from God through the Jews to the world, holy men of God. Here's the message that they gave. You're a sinner. Here's the message that they wrote. Hey, Gentiles, listen up. You're all a bunch of sinners. And don't miss miss this message. Hey, Jews, you're, you're a bunch of sinners too. Everyone is. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, man doesn't like that message, do they? That is not a message man wants to hear. That's not a message that he's real fond of. In fact, man works often to minimize his own sinfulness. He does it by comparison. Here's how he does it. Well, I'm not as bad as. And he points his finger at somebody. He does it by rationalization. Well, it really isn't that bad. But listen, no matter what we may do to lessen the guilt of our sin, the end result is this. We're all sinners. And the end result of our sin is death. Notice secondly, why would they hate a book like this? It was given to us by holy men of God who spake only as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, first of all, it teaches us we're all sinners. But second of all, God's word also informs us how to live. Tells us how to live. The message from God through the Jews to the world informs us that there is a right and a wrong way to live as found in God's law. In other words, God demands certain things and any violation of those things is sin. Man doesn't like to be told what to do. When he is told to have no other gods, he wants to run to idolatry. When he is told to honor father and mother, he instinctively wants to dishonor father and mother. When he is told not to steal or bear false witness, he looks for ways to do this. When he is told not to eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, he eats it anyway. You get the idea, right? Man doesn't like to be told what to do. And yet this book that we hold in our laps tonight, this book that we I pray that we read regularly and that we love and that we seek to live after, this book was written. It was written to inform us how to live. And the world doesn't want to be told what to do. I'll do my own thing, thank you very much. I'll go my own way. Don't shove your religion down my throat. You, you've heard those things, haven't you? And so when the world understands, man, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have this book that tells me how to live if it wasn't for the Jews. Well, you can understand why the world would hate the Jews. Because through them come the oracles. Through them were committed the utterances of God. Thirdly, God's word also informs us there is only one way to peace with God. And that way is by faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse number six that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Listen, man is convinced. Man is convinced the world over that he can do what is necessary to be at peace with God. Most men are living this way. If, if he goes to church enough, if he's baptized, if he takes communion, if he does good, if he gives lots of money away, then he can earn his way to heaven and he can earn his way to peace with God. Listen, listen, have you ever been, you ever been asked, what does this group of people believe? What does that group of people believe? Did you know that all the false religions of the world believe this? They believe in a works-based justification. That's what makes them false. False is that they can believe, they believe that there's something that they can do in order to be at peace with God. And I want you to know something. This book informs us that's simply not right. There is nothing, there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that I can do to earn peace with God. So why does the world hate the Jews? Well, because through the Jews come this book. And the Bible is the only book that teaches, no, the only way to peace with God is by faith in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who was buried, and who rose again the third day. How do, how do we know, by the way, how do we know he did all these things? It's a good question, isn't it? We know it according to the scriptures. Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, notice, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Thirdly and finally, because why does the world hate the Jews? Because by their existence, God provides eternal life through Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 12, God comes upon Abraham. He enters into a relationship with Abraham and he says to him, he says, and in thee, verse number three, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22, God repeats this promise, and he says, And in thy seed, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Genesis 26, in verse number 4, God repeats it again, and he says, I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God even repeated this promise. He repeated it to Jacob and thy seed, verse number 14 of chapter 28, shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Listen, uh, it wasn't an American that provided eternal life for us. A European didn't do it. An African didn't do it. An Asian didn't do it. Eternal life, listen, eternal life is given to us by God through the Hebrew race when God sent his son to be born of a virgin, a little virgin named Mary in the little village of Bethlehem. Of course, this was the ultimate plan of the devil to stop Christ from completing his work on Calvary's hill and in the garden tomb. He was warned that Christ was coming in Genesis 3.15, and every attack, every bitter or hateful thought toward the Jewish people was an attempt by him to keep Christ from fulfilling his mission the life of Christ, here's, here's what the life of Christ says. It says, I'm a sinner. Such a sinner, such a sinner, that an innocent man had to come and die in my place, suffering the most horrific death imaginable, be buried for three days, and then rise again in order for me to be saved. Listen, this gospel is the power of God unto salvation, but it is not without reproach. The Bible talks about the reproach of Christ, the repro- reproach of the gospel, in the initial days after October 7th, there was a groundswell of support for Israel. However, as Israel has begun to retaliate in order to drive out Hamas and free the captives, anti-Semitism has been on full display. I'll share something a little bit personal with you. And Just this week on election day, a woman pulled up in front of the church She parked her car in the very first parking spot out here and she sat in her car for a minute or two. She was digging around in the passenger seat. She proceeded to get out of the car. She looked around, proceeded to get out of the car and she proceeded to stick on the pillars out front and on the handicapped parking slots out front and on the brand new Cornerstone stickers that are anti-Israel and are in favor of Palestine. We know that because it was all captured on camera. We saw our plain as day. I received a text tonight on my way into the service from Brother Ron. And he said that something had happened in Brooklyn. And he sent me a picture. I think the picture is able to be seen. This is a cemetery. I, I texted back, I said, Brooklyn, New York? He said, no, Brooklyn, Ohio. You may not be able to see it very clearly, but those are swastikas. And those are Hebrew graves. Just a mile and a half from here, two miles from here. Listen, this is the world that we're living in. This is is what we're dealing with. So what should we be doing as Bible-believing Christians? Three things, and we'll be done, and it'll be very quick. Number one, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Bible says in Psalm 122, verse number six, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. That's what we ought to do. We ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Listen, I, I, listen, I understand there are, there are souls in, in, in Palestine, Gaza, as it, as it were, that are in harm's way as a result of I get I get all of that. I get all of that. I'm not, here, I'm not here to break everything down, but I'm just simply saying, listen, we need to pray for the nation of Israel. And we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and we need to stand up. We need to stand up for the Jewish people because they're God's chosen people. Number two, can I, can I just say this? Number two, understand. What can we do tonight? Understand that the hatred of the Jews will someday be directed at us. You say, what does this have to do with me? What, what do I care that somebody spray painted swastikas on a Hebrew grave? I don't care. And by, the way, by the way, that's what the German Christians were saying for years. What do we care? We're good. What does it matter to us? It's okay. I just want you to know something. Listen, anti-Semitism, the hatred for the Jews is not over water. It's not over land. The hatred for Jews is a hatred for God. And who do we claim to love? Who do we claim to serve? And what book do we attempt to live out and to stand upon and to preach and to teach? We, We preach and teach the Bible. So you mark it down. You mark it down. Whatever, whatever hatred is, 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 is pointed at the Jews tonight and, and today and in the days to come, it's going to come our way eventually. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Now listen, the church has not replaced Israel in God's program. But the church is responsible for emphasizing and doing many of the same things Israel was given to do, which is to declare the existence of God. In other words, by us and by our lives and by our testimony, people ought to say, there is a God. Look what he's done in the lives of those people. Look what he's doing at that church down the street. Oh, there must be a God. Look at how they're living. Look at what God is using them to do by us, by us. We must preach and live his word and proclaim salvation through the name of Jesus. I'm just simply saying the things that God ordained the Jewish people to do, God has ordained us to do as well. We don't replace them, but we do get to partner together with them and to fulfill what God gave them to fulfill and what God gave them to do. Then, thirdly, and finally, what should we be doing? Look for the return of Christ. Look for the return of Christ. There is a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that talks about Magog. Many believe that Magog, Gog and Magog, is a combining of forces of the Russians and the Iranians to descend from the north, the bear from the north, all of it's there in the book of Ezekiel, to descend upon the nation of Israel. Are you aware? Are you aware some of those talks are happening right now? By the way, those two nations have never, have never had an alliance together. They have never been partners. But it's looking they might, like they might be sometime soon. Say, so what, what, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say, look up. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It can't come soon enough. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, better not be tonight because I'm not ready. And some of you are saying, I'm ready, but I'm not really ready. You get my drift, right? In other words, I'm ready. I know for sure that I'm saved. But if he were to come, I'd be so ashamed at the way that I'm living. Hey, listen, don't let another, don't let another hour go by. Get right with God. Are you, are you saying, preacher, that, that he's coming back to tomorrow? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I, I don't know when he's coming back. I hope it's tonight. I hope it's tonight. It may be another 50 years, 100 years, maybe even longer, but we do know this, he's coming back. The Bible says in Luke 21, 27 and 28, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Keep a close eye, church, on Israel, because they will play a vital role in the end times. As things begin to pick up over there, As things begin to swirl over there, understand what does it mean for us. Sometimes we as Americans, we're sort of guilty of just sort of burying our head in the sand. Well, it's not happening here. It's happening thousands of miles away. We don't need to worry about it. I'm not telling you to worry about it. I'm telling you, look up because Jesus is coming soon. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.